Go ahead and grab a seat and let's uh, have you join me in prayer this morning. Almighty God, we give you all praise, honor, and glory this morning. You are sovereign over all things, the creator and sustainer of this world and savior of our souls. May your will be done, Lord. Daniel, speaking of you, Lord, in Daniel 2.21, said that you change times and seasons. You remove kings and set up kings. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Father, it is you that ultimately determines all things and sets them in motion. Father, may your will be done. Not our will, but your will, Lord. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Lord, help us to remember that our kingdom, if we are in Christ, is not of this world. Our kingdom is not America. Our kingdom is every tribe, tongue, and nation united together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we pray for our nation and we, we pray for our leaders and we want what's best for our country, but we trust in you. Father, help us to live lives that reflect this truth and forgive us for where we have fallen short. No matter what happens in this world, may our hope be found in Christ. Help us, Lord, to spread this hope to actually love God and love people. We recognize that the only thing that can bring about change on this earth is the gospel, your word. May our words and actions reflect Christ to the world around us. Father, we ask now that you ready our hearts, that you open our minds as your word is preached. Be with Jeremy as he shares what you have placed on his heart. Lord, we love you and we praise you. You are good. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And as you do, I want you to think about a, 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 a diamond for a moment. Yeah, just a a beautifully cut diamond. It contains so much complexity, doesn't it? Like you just stop and just behold a, a diamond with its cut, its clarity, its color, its carrot. Yeah, I learned that 17 years ago and uh, in the, the studying leading up to the engagement ring, and I, I've, I've never forgot those four C's of, of the diamond. But when you look at a, a beautifully cut, clear diamond, there's just so much complexity. I mean, every angle that you look at provides more depth uh, to its beauty. I'm trying to put that into words for a moment. Like, try, try to describe in your mind, in words, the beauty of a diamond from all its facets, from all its angles that's coming at it. It's like, um, it's nice. 
Uh, it's pretty. Uh, it's awesome. Uh, we can throw out every adjective in the, in the world to, to, to look at it, but it's really hard to describe in words the majestic beauty of, of a diamond. Well, I believe we have something similar within our text today. Every part of the passage providing believers with, with a deeper appreciation of God's grace. And so if nothing else today, what I want you to walk away with is, is, a, is that. A deeper appreciate, appreciation of God's grace upon us. So Ephesians chapter 2, picking up in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by Spirit. Again, such a, a deep and beautiful passage that we have before us today. One that, that we can mine the treasures of for a very long time and never mine them enough. There's just so much here to behold, so much here to fix our minds and hearts upon and rejoice in, starting with the first word of verse 11, therefore. Because every time we see a therefore, church, we, in Scripture, what do we do? We ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore, right? And here we ask that question of what is the therefore, therefore, and why is it? Well, it's a conjunction, as we know. It's intended to tie what came previous to what comes next. And what is it that came previous? How they, they being the Gentiles, the recipients of this letter, and Paul, a Jew, the writer of this letter, were both once equally dead in their sin. Dead in their sin, but, but no more. No, now, by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, they are alive in Christ. Not by works, not of their own doing, but as a gift of God. Now created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
uh, the therefore here referring to everything we saw in verses 1 through 10 of this chapter. The, the new life Christians have is by God's grace. The old is gone. The new has come. But then he says, therefore, remember. Remember. Remember all of this. Remember everything, all of this. And, and in using the word remember, he's not calling them to remember as though they had forgotten. He's not thinking that they're like just forgotten everything that he has just said. He's calling them to remember and not to lose sight of how amazing God's grace really is. Because we can all do that, can't we? Lose sight of the amazing grace that is before us has been presented to us that we have in Christ. We get so caught up in the hustle and the bustle of life that we get down about our present circumstances and we quickly lose sight of the truths of the, of the gospel. Oh, those glorious truths of the gospel. Lose sight of how blessed we really are if we are in Christ. So we need to be reminded, don't lose sight don't, don't forget, don't, don't, don't lose the eternal perspective in all of this. That's what Paul's doing here. Writing them from prison in Rome. I mean, think about his confines, his context. Writing them from prison to remind them, to encourage the Ephesian church oh, with the amazing depths of God's grace. The depths of God's grace that he is rejoicing in while he's in prison for preaching the gospel. So three points, with each containing three sub-points. This is about as Baptist of a sermon as you can get. Three points, three sub-points with each one. It's a message of threes. Uh, I would pray that it's Trinitarian-focused <laughs> in the process. Starting with here, if we are in Christ. Number one, we were alienated people and alienated people. We were past tense. And to understand the thrust behind Paul's words, we, we must consider the cultural context surrounding Paul's letter. As we have two types of pe people culturally speaking before us in this letter. You have Jews and you have Gentiles. So Jews and everyone else and in order to understand the depths of God's grace, we need to understand how alienated they were from one another within their culture. Because it's really easy for us to, to look out upon our, our present cultural landscape and see all the division that exists and feel like man, there is no hope of reconciliation with this type of division. But I dare say that the division that we see between Jews and Gentiles here in this context was far greater than anything that we see today. At least on a wide scale, there are obviously exceptions to the rule at times, but on a wide scale, it doesn't get any more divisive, it doesn't get any more ostracizing than what we see here in this context. First, they were alienated ethnically. A very clear racial ethnic division. Verse 11, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. 
See, this is extremely derogatory language, which is why cultural context is so important to understand as, as the circumcision is referring to Israel, who then referred to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. Now, one might just look at this as a statement of fact, stating the reality of the situation. The Jews are circumcised, the Gentiles are un uncircumcised. Maybe just using this as a means of identification like we would today, maybe in a similar way of describing the, the color of someone's skin. But the Jews didn't refer to someone as the uncircumcision as a statement of fact. No, they did so as a very clear and intentional derogatory way, just like someone using a, a racial slur would use it. That's what was intended, and that's how it was received. It was just one of the many ways that the Jews looked down upon the Gentiles within their culture, seeing themselves as better than, seeing Gentiles as less than second-class citizens, outcasts, infidels. So you can imagine someone thinks of you this way, treats you with such disdain, how are you going to feel in response the feeling is going to be tending to feel mutual, right? Somebody has total disdain for you. It's going to be very hard for you to be able to love them. Thus, you have this ethnic barrier, this wall between the two that's created from birth. Now, they were also alienated religiously. Verse 12, Paul's saying, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. And by saying you, Paul is specifically referring to the Gentiles as, as Jews were alienated religiously. Gentiles were, were having no hope that the long-awaited Messiah belonged to them. He wasn't promised to them. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Even those who were converted to Judaism, who were circumcised, were seen as nothing more than green card citizens. They were considered less than. They were strangers to the covenant promises. The ethnic alienation and the religious alienation combining together and overlapping in every aspect of life. This is a divided people. See, Jews would have grown up indoctrinated with God's law. Heard about all the covenant promises of God and how they applied to their life. Grown up hearing and knowing that they were God's people so religiously, they were a privileged people, not so for the Gentiles. As they grew up in the religion of the world, then the Jews looking down on the Gentiles for not living according to God's word that they didn't even know to begin with. Oh, church, we don't have to look far to see the application here. Being raised in the church is a, is a great privilege indeed. But it provides us no grounds for, for religious or moral superiority. It, doesn't, it does nothing to make us right before God. If anything, it could give us a false sense of security. A temptation to judge and want to, to clean up moral behavior without ever addressing the heart. Which is itself at the heart of legalism. And much of the division that we see within our culture today, an, an air of moral superiority. All this leading to how they were alienated spiritually. 
Last part of verse 12, Paul's still speaking of the Gentiles and saying, having no hope and without God in the world. Meaning the Gentiles were in the world and they were of the world. No, no question about it. Worldly system, alien and agnostic to God. Spiritually lost, which meant they were quite literally a people without hope. And if you're without hope spiritually, where are you going to look to find your hope that you're longing for? Because every person ha longs for hope. We want things to be better we're going to long for that if you don't have that hope spiritually. You're going to look for it in the world of which you live. You're going to look for it in man-made leaders, such as we see all around us today. Our nation divided on so many levels, ethnically, religiously, socially, politically, and ultimately spiritually, which is the fundamental problem. We're never going to be able to cross the, the ethnic and social and political and religious barriers that exist without addressing the spiritual alienation that exists. It's like trying to slap a, a Band-Aid on a severed limb. It's not going to fix the problem. It's not going to do anything to fix the problem. And this is an important note to, to consider. See, whatever advantages the Jews may have had, ethnically or religiously over the Gentiles, over the people of the world, they were both equally lost. So those who have been in church their entire life and those who have never been in church could both be equally lost. Morally superior does not in any way equals spiritually right. A much-needed reminder that outward advantages aren't the source of our salvation. We can grow up with all the privileges of this world, be an incredibly religious person, and still very much be lost, dead in our sin. When we look out over the social landscape of our culture, we, we must be saddened. But we must not also, we must not be surprised by the hostile division that we see. It's the world being the world. Now, what should confuse us, what should sadden us, is, is when the church looks more like the world than it looks like Christ. Friends, I don't say these words as to think that you don't know, but I echo Paul's words of saying, therefore, remember, remember. That whether Jew or, or Gentile, there, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man. And apart from faith exclusively in him, we are all alienated from one another and from God. Ah, uh, but not so if we are in Christ. Not so if we are in Christ. This is what Paul wants the Ephesian church to remember. That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, once but no more. That's who you were but no more. Why? Because you are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, number two, we are a reconciled people. As verse 13 says, but now in Christ, 
which is where and who our new identity is found in Christ. Meaning, number one, Christ is our peace. Now, how is Christ our peace? Again, verse 13. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We who were once far off brought near by the death of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. That is, made both Jews and Gentiles, these alienated people, one in him. Christ, as Colossians telling us, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, back in Ephesians, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, the barrier of separation and division, gone. How? Christ. Now, what exactly is this dividing wall of hostility? Well, in, in Herod's temple, that would have been the temple that existed um, in Jesus' time all the way up to A.D. 70 before it was destroyed. So this would have been the time of when Paul wrote this letter. There, there was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles so thus the area where both Jews and Gentiles were able to, to be around and in the temple from actually going into the temple area where only the Gentile or only the Jews were allowed to go. It was a separation from the rest of the temple. You can go this far, but no farther. And on the wall, there was an inscription in Latin and in Greek forbidding the Gentiles to enter. A very clear warning, you shall not enter. And it wasn't just like a sign that said, Gentiles do not enter. It was actually a written inscription. Archaeological excavations have actually found actual inscriptions that read, no foreigner... Gentile, that would have been, may enter within this barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. A foreigner, again, is a Gentile. A very clear barrier, this far but no further. But now this barrier no longer exists, it's gone. Why? Because Christ himself has removed the barrier once and for all. How? Verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances or expressed in rules and regulations. But now wait a minute. Wait a minute. If we're thinking about this, like he's talking about abolishing the, the law, abolishing rules and regulations, didn't Christ himself say that he, he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law? I mean, that's what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. So how does this work? What are we to make of this? Is this some type of biblical contradiction? Is there something wrong here? No. There's nothing wrong here at all. And here's why it's not. Through Christ's life, he did exactly what he said he would do on the Sermon on the Mount. Did it all. He, he fulfilled the law. He kept the law's requirements for fully, perfectly. He lived the sinless life that you and I were intended to live perfectly. 
So through his life and death and resurrection, he abolished the law as a means of obtaining righteousness before God because he himself fulfilled it. He did what Adam could never do, what we could never do, which was the purpose of the law all along to show our complete inability to make ourselves right before God through, through good works. That no matter how morally superior we think that we might be, we are not without sin. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, thus showing us our desperate need for God's grace. And it's through Christ's work. Number two, Christ has made peace. See, when the dividing wall came down, the two, that is Gentiles and Jews, became one. So as the second part of verse 15 tells us, Christ breaks down the barrier that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And verse 16, and might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross. So let's be clear as to what doesn't happen here. Gentiles are not receiving an upgrade, okay? This isn't Gentiles being upgraded to Jews through faith in Christ. This isn't uniting of Gentiles as, as Jews as, as being a part now of a Jewish team. This isn't a merger. What this is, is God creating something entirely new out of two. One out of two, creating a brand new family. Got to understand this to understand the beauty of Ephesians chapter 5 and the relationship between Christ and the church. So no longer are Christians in Adam of the world, but in Christ. Again, no longer in the world, but in Christ. And it's a unity that transcends all earthly division. From gender to social to ethnic to political walls of division, all broken down. For in Christ, as we saw in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Thereby, end of verse 16, killing the hostility. Killing the hostility. All the hostility that exists with such earthly division, and we've seen it, intended to be gone within the church, washed over by the blood of Christ. So not only are we made new in Christ, but we are reconciled together in Christ and thus to one another. The death of Christ putting to death that which divides us, which is why division in the church should confuse us. It's out of place. It's not lining up with what we claim to believe. It's not lining up with who we are in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that Christians won't have strong, differing opinions. We will. We do. But as Christians, we must strive to work through those differences peacefully. We're not politicians divided by an aisle that we yell over. We are brothers and sisters who, in Christ who eat at the same family table, which is what Christ himself preached. 
Christ, number three, preaches peace. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off. Paul referring to the Gentiles who were far off. And, check this, preached to those who were near, referring to the Jews. Both Jews and Gentiles receiving the same gospel. Same gospel, both Jews and Gentiles equally needing Christ to reconcile them, us, to God. Why? Because there is only one way we can be reconciled to God. Jew or Gentile, through faith in Christ alone. And it's through him and only him that we both, both have access in one spirit to the Father, which means we who are in Christ, number three, we are a united people, no longer Australian strangers, no longer aliens, rather, one, we are fellow citizens. So we were foreigners, but no more. As verse 19 says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Aliens referring to residents who are not citizens. Foreigners. Saints referring to believers who are citizens of heaven. And if we are in Christ, we are united together as one, as equal citizens. No class system when it comes to God's people. No walls of division when it comes to God's people. Our unity in Christ subsequently uniting us with all of God's people. Therefore, there are no green card Christians. No partial Christians. We share a common belief and a common allegiance that supersedes all earthly loyalties with Christ as our king. We also share a common destination, a place Christ himself has prepared for us. As Paul told the Philippian church, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not all. Number two, we are members of the same family. As verse 19 tells us, each, each of us members of the household of God. Meaning not only do we have, not only meaning that, do we, are we who are in Christ, do we have passports that have, say, citizen of heaven? Oh, we have birth certificates that have God listed as our father. Remember chapter 1, verse 5? In love, he, God the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Oh, church, heavenly citizenship is a great, great blessing. But family is far more intimate. Just consider what, what we're talking about here, the, the alienation of Jews and Gentiles now united as, as family Aliens and strangers now, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what the church is, a family of heavenly citizens. And each local church is to serve as a picture of this to the world. So let me ask you, 
Is that how you see the church? Is that how you see the church? Well, for some of you, the answer is going to be yes, absolutely, that's how I see the church. And for the others, the answer is going to be an honest no, it's not how I see the church. It's something you do on Sunday morning and you go home and you live the rest of your week disconnected from the church. Now, there are no, there's no doubt that we have areas structurally where we can improve as a church in fostering family unity. There's no doubt that our, our current circumstances uh, place various hurdles in our ability to connect. But let me ask you this. What are you presently doing to foster family relationships within the church? Like on a personal level? How are you intentionally praying for one another? How are you caring for and encouraging one another? There's no structure of, of church programming needed for any of this to happen. No amount of programs can compel us to, to pick up a phone or send a text or write a letter or sit around the fire pit. We have to want to. We have to want to make it happen. And, and this takes the family being intentional about being the family. And I know everyone's busy. We're all busy, right? How was your week? It was really, really busy. How, how was your week? <laughs> it was so busy. We, we, we're, we're just always busy. And I also know that we all have different comfort levels right now. We have to be respectful of where one another are at in those comfort levels. And even with the best of intentions here, like, I really want to do this, we, we can be like, oh, I'll, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll reach out next week. And then next week becomes a month, and then a month becomes another month, and the best of intentions kind of fall by the wayside. And it can even be easy, if we're just being perfectly honest, it can be real easy to fall into the, well, no one's checked on me, so why should I check on somebody else? We, we can be introspective and think that way. And if that's the case for you, man, I am so, so sorry. But I do, I come back and I ask, how are you checking on and caring for others? Because when you check on someone else, when you care for someone else, what happens? Well, high likelihood that that causes them, if it's you being the recipient of it, it causes you to think about, well, how can I care for someone else? How can I check on someone else? It fosters a family mindset of love and care and peace. See, the local church is, is where we get to see the vertical relationship that we have with God played out in, in unity with God's family. So I ask, what walls? What, what walls that Christ has already torn down are you still tripping over? What walls are keeping you from walking in peaceful unity with your church family? Lastly, number three, we are a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're not only a part of God's family, we are the very temple of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So for a thousand years, the Jerusalem temple was the official focus of God's presence and of God's people. But with the death of Christ, the earthly temple was torn down, not physically, but functionally. And with his resurrection, 
the new temple was put in place. Where? Where's the location of this temple? In every believer. We who are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death are the temple of God, a temple built with a foundation, a temple built with a cornerstone, and a temple built with stones. As verse 20 tells us, the temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. This referring to those who proclaimed the word of God. Meaning the foundation of the new temple is the word of God. Thus the church without the word of God as its foundation is built on nothing but shifting sand. The word of God driving everything we think and everything we do. It's why a church's statement of faith is so important. It's where we as the church say, here is where we stand in unity with one another. May have differing opinions on a lot of things. What family doesn't? But on these things, our foundation stands. But then on the foundation is what? The cornerstone. The text telling us Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone which is not, the, not only the fulfillment of hundreds of years of Old Testament prophecy, that the long-awaited Messiah would be this cornerstone, this chief cornerstone, but it's also important and powerful imagery intended to teach us as the foundation and stability and character of every building rests upon the cornerstone. Take the Jerusalem temple, for example, built on a huge foundation of stones, the largest of which was a 29-foot stone in length. It was the size of a railroad boxcar. And what did it do? It marked the beginning of the foundation. This stone was, was used to determine the line of the building. It was secured the structural integrity of the building, determine the shape and the growing ability of the building. Every other stone had to be adjusted to align with this stone. Same is true with us and Christ. We as the church grow as we grow under the foundation of the cornerstone of Christ, which brings us to the final component of the new temple, the stones that construct the temple. As verse 21 tells us, it's Christ. The whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here's the picture. Previously, earthly temple contained a wall of separation, a wall of hostility. But now... We who are in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles, are the unifying stone walls, stones all put together of a new temple built in Christ. And it's in Christ and through his word that we grow as the church. Friends, this is the church. This is the biblical church. Anything we see counter to this is not the church. This is the church. This is God's plan before the foundation of the world. A people built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And oh, what a diamond it is to behold. 
so many things to continue to, un, to dive into and mine out of this wonderful text. And we'll do that again next week. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what grace you have lavished upon we who are in Christ. We were aliens and strangers. We were foreigners outside of your kingdom and outside of your family. But through the blood of Christ, you have reconciled us to yourself. We have peace with you and with one another through the blood of the cross. And we say thank you. Thank you for breaking down the dividing walls of hostility. Now may we live as the people you have called us to be. May we continually strive to live in peaceful unity with one another. Let us show humility in setting our differences aside and cling to the cross that unites us. We ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Almighty God, amen. We'll stand together and sing in response to the preaching of God's word.